Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We've been using the end of our year here at Detroit Today to talk to Michigan natives who have had standout moments in 2017. Our guest today has had several of those incredible moments. Tim Alberta is a feature writer for Politico magazine in that role. He profiled the inflammatory and ever-interesting congressman from South Carolina, Mark Sanford, had the first lengthy conversation with U.S. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, and he interviewed former Speaker of the House John Boehner over a candid 18 hours. Tim's writing has often made news and gone viral this year, and we're happy to talk to him now about the whirlwind year he has had. Tim Alberta, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Great to be with you. Yes, it's always great to hear your voice. Let's start with this. Uh, I don't know that people who are not part of journalism quite understand how one reporter ends up with a huge interview and other reporters don't. And, of course, you know, scoops get passed around, right? Uh, uh, Everybody sort of has their day, I think, uh, when they've got the the big story. But you seem to do it a little more frequently than uh, other folks I know there in, in Washington. And I think it's worth, it's worth exploring how that, how that happens. How is it that somebody trusts you enough to say, let's sit down and talk extended, uh, in, in an extended way about, uh, about what's going on in my life, uh, and they don't do that with someone else? It's a great question. Boy, I, I think I would probably start with what you said there at the end. Trust. I think trust is paramount. I think trust is, is uh, sort of the, the cornerstone of the entire reporting process and really, I think, speaks to the relationships involved here. And that is to say that folks you're working with, whether it's the principal, uh, in, in my case, most of the time, a politician or an elected official, uh, the principal uh, has to trust that his or her people who serve as their gatekeepers uh, on the communication side of things, that that they're working with people who they know are going to be fair and who are going to be objective and who, you know, above all, they're, they're probably not going to love every word that winds up in a story. They shouldn't or else the, the reporter would not be doing their job. But I think above all, you know, your reputation precedes you in a lot of these instances. And what I've tried to do, and I know that lots of my talented colleagues uh, in the business try to do, is to establish uh, a a reputation based on fairness. Um, With with John Boehner, for example, uh, you know, I covered Capitol Hill when he was the speaker. I wrote lots of stories on a daily basis about him and about the Republican leadership and their battles with Democrats in Congress and with the Obama White House. And there were lots of stories I wrote that Boehner didn't like. Matter of fact, I heard from him and his people more than once about something uh, I wrote that they didn't like, but never once did they think it was malicious or misleading Mm -hmm. or, or deliberately unfair. They knew that even when I was writing things that made them look bad or that they disagreed with, that I was approaching the story uh, in a fair-minded, nuanced, balanced way. And I think that really makes all the difference. So when you're able to build those relationships with people based on 
uh, sort of a, an understanding that uh, they're going to get a fair shake. That's really all they can ask for on yeah. their side of the fence. And so I've just tried to do that. It sounds simple because it is. Uh, and I think once you do that over time, uh, people do trust you and they're willing to sort of open the door for you knowing that uh, whatever the final product is, they're not going to have any regrets because they don't think they'll be mistreated. Right. Uh, and the process of putting together a story like that. Let's talk for instance, about uh, your 18-hour uh, meeting and interview with John Boehner. It doesn't look like a regular interview. It doesn't feel like a regular interview. And I think I always feel like when you're done with something like that, you're kind of left thinking, okay, maybe I have something really great here or maybe I've got nothing at all <laughs> because because you have so much. And you're like, uh, you're, you're sort of sorting through it to find that, that narrative that that sort of presents itself and is worth worth sharing with the readers. Uh, that's exactly right. It, it, it's a real process. You know, the, the Boehner story is, is kind of a dramatic example, an extreme example, because I don't think I've ever quite done that much reporting for a <laughs> single that much time with no for a start, single right? piece before. Um, but I've done a lot of other uh, you know long pieces on on um, you know various elected officials and candidates for office, and, and generally um, the process is. You know, you at the outset are going to sit down with the principal and with probably one or two of their top staff members, and you're going to hash out, you know, what this looks like in terms of the, the logistics involved. And for me, as a, as a feature writer, it's very important that I can try to get to people and, and spend time with individuals and access them outside of their sort of button-down political environment. I, I very much want them to be in a in a natural setting. So for John Boehner, that started on the golf course, and then mm -hmm. it segued into his living room over glasses of wine. Um, with with Betsy DeVos, uh, it was a little more buttoned up because this is somebody who's very media shy. And <laughs> we talked on the road during this uh, education tour she was doing, but it was off the record. She wanted to get comfortable with me. So we had an off-the-record conversation, and I found it to be actually really revealing because in that conversation I felt like it was it was much you know obviously without giving any of it away uh, substantively just stylistically she was very relaxed and we had a very easy conversation but then when we actually did the interviews for the story <clears throat> that was in her office back in Washington and, and it was very different so that's just as an example uh, why for me a big part of the process is making sure that I can have access to people whether it's back home in their in their districts or, or in their states um, at a fundraiser with friends and family whatever it might be trying to get people in an environment where they're relaxed and where they've sort of let their guard down I have found is really key to getting people to say things that they otherwise would not say when they're in a more sort of politically conscious environment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Tim Alberta. He is uh, a feature writer for Political Magazine. Uh, he is here talking to us as part of our year-end series on Detroit Today where we're talking with Michigan natives who have had standout moments in 2017. Tim had several big interviews published in Politico this year. Uh, we're talking about the process of getting those stories, putting them together, and trying to make sure that you tell the stories that you can and want to to your readers. Tim, I want to talk about, uh, you, as a journalist, the, the sort of brand that you have uh, that's that's grown quite a bit. I feel like in the last couple of 
uh, of years and the role that social media increasingly plays in that brand. That's really different than it was the way when I came into the business 25, 26 years ago. Uh, you, you didn't have to. You didn't have to worry about those things. You didn't have to talk about those things. Um, now, now you do, and and it, it it changes. I think the way you think about so much of this. That you're you're absolutely right, and it's um, you know I think social media is really a blessing and a curse to use the cliche, but it's it's just so true. It's terrific as a medium to share your stories, to access other information, to have real-time conversations with individuals, whether it be other reporters, um, staff members, uh, people who have, you know, close proximity to information that you want, or I think probably most importantly, just with regular folks, the way that you do on your show every day, Stephen, just having conversations with people who are you know, constituents or who are voters who are affected by things that are happening in the news. It's so it's it's fantastic as a as a real time conversation that you can have with people all over the world. Uh, on the other hand, I think as we've seen with social media in general and particularly Twitter, uh, people can really get themselves in trouble. Um, it, as a reporter, you're trained to be inherently cautious and to make sure that, uh, and as I was sort of alluding to earlier, that, that fairness and, and balance and objectivity are at the forefront uh, of your work. And when you're on social media, you have this tendency, I think it's just sort of human nature, to let your guard down a little bit because, you know, things that you would never write in an official story, you don't, you don't think twice necessarily about tapping it out on Twitter from your smartphone. And, and that can be really dangerous because you, the, the line blurs between not just reporting and analysis, but between sort of, um, you know, smart, nuanced, well-researched uh, political dialogue and just sort of shooting from the hip hot takes. And a lot of reporters, myself included, have fallen prey to that at times. And I think I've tried to really pull back over the last year or so. I know in my newsroom at Politico, the editors are ju- are, are all over us about social media and, and rightfully so because they've seen these patterns developing and they're, and they're very worrisome because uh, above all, Again, you, your reputation as a reporter and as as a as an outlet as a publication uh, is just so incredibly important. And once it begins to be damaged in any way uh, or tainted uh, by uh, by any accusation of bias, then you're in real trouble. And so I think newsrooms all over the place now are really guarding against that, and they should be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about why you feel like. Uh, some of these uh, Republican figures that you've been able to get to talk about these things. Why, why do they pick you and why do they trust you? Um, you? You used to work for the National Review and the National Journal. Um, the National Review, of course, is a, a longtime conservative publication. Uh, National Journal is sort of more middle, middle of the road, I think, uh, would be a, an, ap- an accurate description there. Do you think that has something to do with their their level of comfort with you? In other words, someone like John Boehner says, well, you know, I don't like the liberal media. He's said that many times, I think, before. <laughs> but maybe this Alberta guy is different because he's coming out of a different a different background. Is that is, is that at play here? 
You know, it's interesting, Stephen, um, when I joined the National Review, it was sort of in the middle of the 2016 campaign. Uh, it was in late 2015, and I had actually been with National Journal for, for many years, writing for both National Journal and The Atlantic, its sister publication. Um, and what was really interesting is that when I had conversations with the folks at National Review, I had never planned to work in partisan media or, or in media that has sort of any ideological skin in the game. And I myself am, have tried to be my entire career very ruthlessly objective. And, and I think even my wife would tell you she really does not know where I would land on any major political issue. And that's important to me. And when I sat down with the National Review guys, they asked the same question that you just asked. They said, why do Republicans seem to give you so much access? And I said, well, I think it's probably because uh, by virtue of the timing of when I arrived in D.C., I, I arrived here shortly before the Obama inauguration. And basically, as I've tracked it over the last you know nine years now, and I, as I write a lot about, the modern Republican Party is going through this fascinating transformative period in its history that really started in the last six months or so of the Bush administration with the, with the TARP vote and, and so many Republicans uh, voting against the administration and against the Treasury Secretary and all that that triggered as far as the Tea Party wave that arrived two years later in the Obama presidency and so on, all the way till today, where you have a unified government, of course, with Donald Trump at the top as president. And all of that is to say that Basically, from the time I got to D.C., everybody was very taken with this new president who was about to be sworn in and, and how the Democratic Party had executed this takeover of, of the federal government. And, and it was a, obviously a fascinating story. But I found myself more interested by what was happening to the Republican Party, why you saw this mass rejection of the Bush administration in its sort of twilight moments, and what was going to come of it. Uh, you saw a party that was sort of going into the wilderness at that point, so to speak. So what I really made my uh, coin and trade, I think, pretty early on when I arrived in town was sort of swimming upstream a little bit and paying really close attention to the Republican Party and specifically to a lot of these conservatives who felt betrayed by the Bush administration and who seemed to be almost breaking off on their own path, uh, sort of diverging from the GOP. And that is what we saw, of course, in 2010 with that Tea Party wave that came to Washington. So ever since then, I've really tried to embed myself on the right and to understand where these factions exist in the Republican Party. So it's a long way of answering your question. But by the time I went to National Review, they hired me. They have lots of uh, commentators and opinion guys who, who, who are all conservative, but they hired me just to cover conservatives as a reporter. And I think by the time the election was over... Um, uh, they, it was funny, I joked with some of them and they said, you know, I have no idea whether you love us or you hate us, but boy, you sure understand us. And, and I think <laughs> that that's probably the highest compliment one could be paid. That's a really interesting way for them, uh, for them to put that. Um, what, what were some of the standout moments this year you didn't get to write about? What were some of the stories that you maybe wanted to get a big, a big scoop on that, uh, that slipped by you? That's a great question. <laughs> I think I would have to start with the fact that I have not in this calendar year interviewed the president, and uh, I would have very huh. much liked to. Yeah. Uh, he was not fond of a few things I wrote during the campaign. At one point, I was actually very close to having an at-length sit-down with him, and then it was pulled back because of something I had written. And, um, and his people are sort of notoriously uh, uh, finicky like that. Um, I, I did do a, a couple of interviews with him uh, during the 2016 campaign, but they were sort of shorter things. I never was able to sit down 
and do a, a, a lengthy feature. And I was hoping that I would be able to in 2017, but some uh, grudges linger longer than others, and, and that just hasn't worked out. Same with the vice president. I was able to sit down with him for a very lengthy feature a few weeks before Election Day, and his people did not like it at all. And, uh, and a matter of fact, um, the entire uh, vice presidential operation has sort of shut me out ever since. So I was able to write a piece on Pence earlier this year, but, but he did not agree to an interview. So... I, I do I do wish I had been able to interview one or both uh, of those individuals because mm-hmm. obviously um, they're running the country. And, uh, you know, beyond that, um, I wouldn't say, look, there are so many fascinating figures in this new administration, uh, so many cabinet officials. Betsy DeVos, obviously, was, was, was really enjoyable. Well, maybe enjoyable is the wrong word. Uh, it was really... It was really interesting to write about her and to try and get into her world, but she is so closed off and she is so cloistered from from a media perspective and really from a political perspective. Um, She has sort of lived in in an ivory tower, uh, even while she has played such a such an outsized role in influencing, you know, public policy debates over education and, and given, you know, millions of dollars to conservative causes. Nobody has still really figured out exactly who she is and what makes her tick. And even in writing that story, I was I was uh, grateful to have the opportunity and to get some access to her. But I, I'll be honest, as a, as a reporter, I walked away from that story feeling like I didn't quite get it. There's still a lot there that I feel like I was not able to unearth because she just keeps everything so close to the vest. Uh, and there are lots of other folks in the Trump administration who are the same way, especially other cabinet officials who I would love to, ha- to have the, the chance to, to take a whack at. But yeah. I just don't know if they would let me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Michigan native Tim Alberta, a feature writer for Political Magazine. We're talking about the standout moments he had here in 2017. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest today is Tim Alberta. He's a feature writer for Political Magazine, a Michigan native. He's here as part of our end of the year series on Detroit Today, where we're talking to Michigan natives who've had standout moments in 2017. Uh, In this year alone, Alberta has profiled the ever-interesting congressman from South Carolina, Mark Sanford, had the first lengthy conversation with U.S. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, and he interviewed former Speaker of the House John Boehner over a really candid 18 hours. As I said, Tim, you are uh, a Michigan native. Uh, Talk about sort of where you're from here in Michigan, uh, how you grew up, and how you found your way to journalism. Sure. Well, I grew up in uh, Brighton, for the most part, I, I spent a few years in Livonia when I was younger, but we moved to Brighton when I was in uh, first grade, and, and I went through the public schools and graduated uh, from Brighton High School. And I suppose I sort of stumbled into political journalism. I knew that I wanted 
to write. And, and I was pretty convinced by the time I was 17 or 18 years old that my two passions, uh, writing and sports, made me sort of a natural to be a, a sports reporter, to be maybe be a beat writer for the Tigers or the Pistons. Uh, I could never do the Lions because I, I just don't think my, my heart could handle uh, the, the, the job. Right. Uh, <laughs> so I, I found my way to... Uh, to Michigan State after a, a, a stopover at Schoolcraft College because I was uh, a little more interested in, in partying and girls in high school instead of my studies. So I needed to do a, a year at Schoolcraft to get the grades up. And then I transferred over to Michigan State. And when I was at Michigan State planning to go into sports journalism, I took a class from Eric Friedman, who uh, was a former Pulitzer-winning reporter at the Detroit News, and he's a professor at Michigan State, runs a fabulous program called the Capital News Service. And basically, the Capital News Service is a a wire service for all of these far-flung, smaller newspapers all across Michigan and some in Ohio and Indiana. And they pay for stories from the state house in Lansing. And a lot of these smaller newspapers can't afford to pay for an Associated Press wire, and so they pay for the Capital News Service. And the Capital News Service is comprised of seven or eight reporters each semester who cover the Capitol and who file stories. And I thought that that sounded kind of interesting, and I had not a political bone in my body, but I thought, oh, what the heck? And I signed up, and it was really a lot of good fortune because at that time when I was covering the state house, uh, Granholm was the governor, and and Republicans had a, a majority in the Senate, and so they controlled essentially the chamber, uh, and the state government shut down, and everything was very chaotic, and it was clear that uh, the state government just did not have its act together, and it was sort of a bipartisan uh, fiasco. And I can remember being up there in the middle of this and and sort of accidentally breaking news, not really knowing, not really realizing at the time that all a reporter is is somebody who finds out information and then tells other people information. And um, I didn't, you know, necessarily have uh, any great journalistic uh, training at that time. I was still relatively young, but I had some real success up there almost unwittingly. And my professor, Eric Friedman, w- was sort of telling me at the time, you know, look, you're kind of good at this. You could really be good at this. And, and he wound up sending some clips of mine along. And the long story short, uh, shortly before I graduated from Michigan State, I got a call from the Wall Street Journal in Washington offering me an internship. And I thought it was a prank phone call because I had never been to Washington and I didn't know anybody at the Wall Street Journal. And I didn't realize that uh, I had even applied there. Uh, I had applied to sort of a a, mm. uh, a, bl- a blanket internship program. <laughs> right. So uh, the next thing you know, uh, uh, two weeks after I graduated from Michigan State, I packed up my Oldsmobile and I drove out to D.C. where I had never been and I didn't know anybody. And that was uh, nine years ago. Wow. And, there, and, and uh, met my wife out here and started a family out here and uh, could not be more blessed to be in this situation. So, so talk about that transition from the Midwest to the East Coast and to to Washington, you know, the center of political and government power, uh, some business power now even uh, in in our country. Uh, I, I'm someone who who made that same transition uh, in my career at some point. Uh, moved to to Baltimore and then worked in Washington for a long time, and and I found it I found it difficult. I found it hard. Sometimes to understand uh, the dynamics of a place like Washington, which um, I think doesn't have as much sort of uh, or as many people who are as, as rooted there as uh, they are in places like Michigan, right? Transient population, but also the sort of 
the, the difference in values, I guess, uh, between growing up here and, and someplace like there. And I'm not passing any judgment at all uh, on, on Washington. It's just a different place. Uh, did you find that uh, did you find that difficult? I found it extremely difficult. Uh, everything you just said w- was exactly how I felt and how I remembered it. I, I can still actually remember uh, two or three weeks after I moved out here. And uh, and it was my birthday, and I didn't have a, a friend in the city. I had rented a, a small room and, and um, was, you know, interning at the Wall Street Journal, so getting in early and working late and hustling, trying to do anything I could. But I spent my birthday alone, and I just remember thinking, I, I hate this. I just want to go home. And, and it wasn't just being sort of lonely. It was exactly what you just described, Stephen, the, the, the cultural difference. Um, you talked about values. I mean, and, and again, I'm not going to pass judgment either, but there, there is absolutely a cultural difference uh, growing up in sort of um, small town, Midwest. Um, you know, pe- people are just I- extremely friendly. There's a sense of community. Um, you know, w- when you meet somebody over a beer, you know, the first question they they ask you is about family or where you went to college or did you see the game last night? And in D.C., it's, you know, what do you do? Oh, who do you work for? Oh, how long you been there? And, and it's this almost, you know, probing to see how important you are and what can you do for me and maybe we can have this transactional relationship. And that was a huge adjustment for me to make. Um, I had never been to D.C. I'd never been to the East Coast. I'd never really spent time in any major city. I'm I'm kind of a small town kid, um, pastor's son. My dad's a, a minister where where I grew up. Um, big you know big big family with a bunch of brothers and a bunch of close friends. And so I was sort of this you know small town rube stuck in the city suddenly trying to you know make sense of all of this. And I, I will say though. Uh, I think I have been able to, once I was able to get over some of those differences and kind of get my wits about me and and realize um, how to navigate this place, I think I've been able to use some of that to my advantage because I do think that there is an appetite. D.C. is a very transient place, as you mentioned, and I do think that there are lots of folks who come here from other places where they've had similar upbringings, and maybe they start to adapt and adjust uh, a little bit to the city life. But I think that there are lots of people here who breathe a sigh of relief when they meet somebody that they can just sort of talk about the game last night or or they can have sort of a more casual uh, conversation that is that, uh, you know, isn't revolving around their own self-importance. And I, I think that whether it's dealing with sources, as I do every day to, you know, to do my job, um, colleagues of mine, people around the city who, who I've gotten to know and sort of built, you know, professional uh, alliances with, I have actually found it to be tremendously helpful just to sort of be myself and to not try to become some of that which I did not like when I first moved out here, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, talk about the the transition sort of work-wise to, uh, to, to covering politics and, and dealing with the, the very different creatures, uh, I guess, who inhabit the halls of Congress and, and places like that. It, it, I also found that to be I was there covering the courts uh, for for five years, but of course that's all caught up in the political world and the political process. Um, you know th- that transition I found really difficult too. You know, covering Congress will just open your eyes. There was a line <laughs> in the in the Painter story where he said, and and I'm paraphrasing; it's not quite verbatim, but he said. You know, Congress is nothing more than a slice of America. You've got some of the nicest people you'd ever meet, and you've got some who are Nazis. And and, <laughs> he, and he was exactly right. I mean, y- if you spend any significant time 
covering Congress, you realize a couple of things. First, what Boehner just said, it's absolutely true that these people really are a representation. But but second, and more fundamentally, you realize, and I say this in speeches all the time, and I've said this on television, and, and I've, I always get some nasty feedback from, from Hill offices, Capitol Hill you know, staffers, including some who I know really well and who are sort of busting my chops. And I don't say it to be malicious. I really don't. But I say it just as a public service and as a taxpayer who's aggravated by it. We have so many people in Congress who do not belong there. It's Mm. astounding. Uh, And when you say don't belong there, expand on that. Yeah, I'll be very precise. People who do not, people who lack the capacity for governance and and in lacking the capacity for governance i mean specifically people who are either unable or unwilling to understand how the legislative branch is supposed to function how the house and senate are supposed to relate to one another how the legislative branch relates to the executive branch there there is not there is no longer an understanding between the two parties uh, much less within the two parties of the fact that, yes, we are here to represent, you know, some of our sort of ideological interests. Sure, if that's what people elect us on, whatever our campaign platform is, whatever our promises are, sure, that's important. But above all, we are here to run the government and we are here to represent the interests of our constituents. And what you see, I think, pretty consistently on Capitol Hill in both parties, and it's not just to do the sort of blanket both sides thing, but you do see individuals who come here sort of catering to uh, some of the concerns uh, and priorities of the, the fringe of their parties. And when these folks are elected, they come here believing that that is a mandate never to compromise within their own parties, much less to compromise across the aisle. And it produces this sort of cyclical, self-perpetuating polarization in the Congress that I believe has infected the country. When, when people talk about how the country is polarized, mm-hmm. therefore they send polarizing people to Congress, I actually sort of think it's the other way you around. You feel I, like it's the other way around. That's I, I, I really do, because the people who I have covered and, and, and worked with on a daily basis, and again, I have focused most of my efforts on the Republican Party, and I know that there are folks in the Democratic Party who commit these same sins, but just within the Republican Party, over the last nine years that I've been in D.C., you just encounter so many of them that are just f- fundamentally, again, not interested in, in doing what's best for their constituents. They're interested in doing what gets them elected, what gets them on Fox News, what earns them sort of plaudits from the right, what sets them up to have a lucrative career after politics. And it's really discouraging because I think I, like lots of other young people, came to Washington idealistic and, and, and thinking that, you know, this is it, like we've arrived and, mm-hmm. and these are, you know, these are the people who are, are running our country and they've got these really noble purposes about them. And I think after, I, I think, I think it take in my case, at least, it did not take very long at all for that idealism to sink to skepticism and then to start to bleed into cynicism, which is a really dangerous thing. And I'm, I wish I didn't have to say that, but it's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk about the people who inspired you to become a journalist, people who you were reading and watching uh, back here in Michigan, who you said, ah, that seems like it could be an interesting job and an interesting life. Boy, you know, it's so funny. 
because again, I was not political, even in the least. Like I, I remember my parents watching the news, and I didn't even sit down and watch, you know, uh, <laughs> Tom Brokaw with them. You know, it just wasn't. But, but I, I do. You know, they had the Detroit News and the Detroit Free Press delivered to the house, both papers, and and I loved diving in. And I would mostly, you know, I would start with with the with the sports page, and I love to read. Uh, Bob Wojnarowski and and uh, the the longtime sports columnist for the news, and I used to love to read Rob Parker, even though he would drive me nuts when he wrote for the news. Um, <laughs> I think and, that was his goal. Was I think that, yeah, crazy, right? he succeeded. Provocateur. Yes, <laughs> yes, and and Drew Sharp. Yes. Oh my goodness, don't yes. get me started. The, the late the late great Drew Sharp. Um, but well, and and so it's funny because. I actually had a similar conversation once I got to Michigan State with Eric Friedman, who became a real mentor of mine and a, and a guy who was just a, a pro, a real pro covering politics. Mm-hmm. And and he asked me the same thing. And I rattled off all these people. And he said, well, these are all sports people. And I said, I got to be honest, Professor Friedman, I don't know. A, I'm not sure I know a single person who writes about politics in Michigan. So, I mean, I, I, I'm ashamed to admit that in retrospect, but it is sort of funny in in tracing back how uh, how unlikely it is that I would sort of wind up in this position because <laughs> I, I I just was I, I didn't come from any sort of a political background at all okay this is Detroit today on 1019 WDET I'm Stephen Henderson my guest is Tim Alberta he's a feature writer for a political magazine when we come back we're going to talk more to Tim about covering politics in the era of Trump in Washington stay with us on Detroit today <laughs> You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Tim Alberta. He's a feature writer for Political Magazine. We've got him here as part of our end of the year series at Detroit Today, where we're talking to Michigan natives who had standout moments in 2017. And last year, Tim has written a profile uh, of the inflammatory and ever-interesting congressman from South Carolina, Mark Sanford. He had the first lengthy conversation with U.S. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, and he interviewed former Speaker of the House John Boehner for 18 hours. Uh, Tim, I want to talk about Donald Trump, and you said something earlier in the conversation that I want to go back to. You said you haven't had a a chance to talk with the president in in his first year in office. You believe that's that's maybe because uh, he's he's sore at you about some things, but but talk about the relationship between this president and the media and how that looks inside inside the West Wing, inside the press room. Uh, I, I I remember very well from my days in Washington uh, as a reporter when you went over there to the White House and and went into the press room or into the West Wing it was a it was pretty amazing uh, how small it all is and how close quarters everybody is working in and that uh, uh, that there's a dynamic I think that comes out of that that it, it is not there isn't that distance from uh, the press secretary or the chief of staff that you might imagine from the shots on television, which all make it look more grandiose uh, and 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 more sort of, I guess, removed than it is. Um, but but talk about what it's like to be there. Talk about what it's like to build those relationships 
with a new president who, of course, is different from everybody else and doesn't seem to much like the press at all. Well, that's exactly right how you described it, the, the, the proximity and, and the intimacy that you're describing. And, and what's interesting, Stephen, is that I would, I would say that the distance between the administration and the press corps uh, seems to be much greater uh, than, the, than, the, than those you know, physical separations that you're describing because of, of Trump's own relationship with the media throughout the campaign and in his earliest days in office. Um, it is when he says that that the press is the enemy of the American people or, or the opposition party, as Steve Bannon likes to describe it, that is really how they feel. I think there are certain things that Trump says and does for emphasis and for effect that he's exaggerating or, or, or it's, you know, a strategic use of hyperbole. I don't think that it's hyperbole when he talks about the media that way. I, I truly do believe that Trump views the media as an impediment to his, not only his ability to govern, but to his ability to communicate with the American people on his terms, which is why he takes to Twitter as often as he does. It's really interesting. When Trump won, I thought to myself, you know, look, yes, he's been extremely antagonistic towards the media. And I think unnecessarily so. But I also thought, and I had this conversation with a lot of smart colleagues, that this is a real moment for journalism to stand up, not just in terms of, you know, the accountability journalism. Obviously, that's extremely important, holding any administration accountable. But I think that Trump was hitting on something during the campaign and exploiting something, and that something was a growing distrust of the media across the country and across ideological and partisan lines. We've seen for decades a a declining confidence in the media and and fewer and fewer Americans believing that the media is is objective and trustworthy. And really, I think that's been a corollary to a declining trust in other American institutions. The media has not been exempt uh, from that trend. And I think Trump tapped into that in a really interesting way. And when he won, I, I had this conversation with folks in D.C. where I said, you know, I think in a way this could be the best thing that ever happened to journalism because there should be no margin for error. I have witnessed uh, in, in my own time here, Stephen, in a number of different newsrooms working with tremendous award-winning reporters in different environments, how there has been this kind of slow but discernible slip in journalistic standards. And I think social media has played a role in that. But but it has been uh, very disturbing to, I think, a lot of people in our industry how the standards have slipped a little bit in terms of people prioritizing speed over accuracy, yeah. people sometimes prioritizing sort of things that will get them uh, attention uh, and get them clicks rather than things that are kind of nuanced and three-dimensional. And I think Trump, when he came along, the you know, calling fake news and, and wanting to put the pressure on us, I welcomed that pressure because I think that journalism is at its best when journalism is at at its most careful. Uh, every you know, if you're going to publish anything on the Trump administration, it needs to be thoroughly vetted, thoroughly fact checked. It needs to be airtight. Do not give him the opportunity to score points off of us. But what we've seen in too many instances, and I'm not going to you know name them to call out reporters or publications, we make mistakes. We're all human. But we've seen 
in these first nine months, a bunch of different instances where we've played right into the president's hands and we have given him ammunition to call us fake news and to rail against us and to Mm. turn the country against us. So the relationship is very strange in that respect because I think that he is just lurking, waiting for the, the entire White House, really. Uh, they are just waiting for any slip up from the press corps so that they can use it to discredit the, you know, the 98 percent of stories that are accurate. But they're going to use the 2 percent of stories that have errors or, or big mistakes to try and discredit the other 98 percent. And it's a very troubling trend. And, and and do you think that do you think that the overreaction is about being baited by this president into that overreaction. I mean, I'm always really curious when I see this White House do the things that it does, whether whether that's a function of them not knowing how to do things or not knowing how to say things, or whether they really absolutely know what they're doing and absolutely expect the response they're going to get, and that's what they want, right? To be able to say, ah, we got you on this one. You, You jumped right in. Man, that is so you you, you framed it perfectly. And it's the sixty four thousand dollar question. Like, is this all part of a grand scheme in terms of their sort of play against the media or is it almost accidental? And do they stumble into some of it? Mm. I tend to think it's the former, uh, um, not just because of Trump himself. Uh, I I, I am not uh, I'm not in this camp that believes that Trump is a a strategic mastermind and that he's playing three dimensional chess and seeing all these moves away in advance. I do think that in a lot of instances, he sort of stumbles into these things. But I think that specifically, in terms of the White House's relationship with the media, there is no question that they have baited members of the media into tweeting things, saying things on air, even writing things in print that they would not write about another administration just in terms of and oftentimes it's more implicit than explicit it's the way things are said it's the tone taken but look there's no question that Trump and his folks in the west wing they believe it is in their interest politically and otherwise to lure the media into this sort of uh back and forth with them mm-hmm. and because because it not only not only uh is trump going to win it every time because he the the base the, the conservative base and the republican party and its electorate broadly speaking uh does not trust the media uh, much, you know, their distrust of the media is, is much uh, broader than than the distrust of the media among the general population so not only is it a battle that trump's going to win but it takes the American people's eye off the ball. They realize that there are going to be stories coming out, uh, uh, you know, on a daily basis, practically, that are not terribly good for the administration. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Tim Alberta. He's a feature writer for Political Magazine. He's here as part of our year-end look at uh, some standout moments in 2017 that Michigan natives had. So I, I'm really curious what you think, Tim, about where this goes, and and not just in terms of the relationship between this White House and the media, but in terms of the relationship between this White House and everything. There, there's this this thing uh, that that uh, that I've I've heard people talk about in Washington, people who've worked in various White Houses about normalization, right? That that there are some things that get carried over from one administration to the next that you just got to do. And it's the 
it's the it's the right the way to manage things uh, as as a, from a governance perspective. And I, I feel like this White House's relationship with the media, combined with the real missteps that we've seen and the real sort of starts and stops and all the people who have come and gone, I think they're related. Um, and and I wonder if you see the solution for one maybe being related to the solution to the other. In other words, if they could get their act together in terms of governance, would they would they have a different relationship with, with media? Boy, that's another really good, good question. I think they would. Uh, you, you have to think that... You know, look, if you are working in this White House, and I, I can say this with authority because I talk to people every week uh, who, who work in the West Wing, and um, you know, I had a dinner last week with, with a, a senior administration official, and we were discussing this very thing. There is this bunker mentality that they have all adopted because, let's face it, every week there's a new crisis. Sometimes every day there's a new crisis, and some of them are self-inflicted. Whatever your partisan disposition may be, there is no disputing the fact that to have your press secretary, chief of staff, national security advisor, DHS secretary, what else am I? I mean, there are a couple of other prominent administration roles. To have them all turn over in the first, you know, seven or eight months or whatever it was mm-hmm. of, of an administration, it speaks to a certain degree of incompetence and of chaos in the West Wing. There's just there's just no disputing that. All of this has sort of converged, Stephen, to to put these folks in the White House into this bunker mentality that right. I described, where they view it as just trying to survive the day. And they view it as the media is out to get them next. And, and at any moment, a story could break about them. And, 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 and suddenly their livelihood will be you know thrown into question. So when you're living in that kind of a bunker... Of course, you're going to have a very adversarial relationship with the media. And really, I think with the rest of town, uh, it's even been remarkable to see the sniping between the White House and Capitol Hill and not between Republicans and Democrats, but all within the Republican family, because I think there's even so much distrust uh, of Republicans on the Hill selling out the White House and, and and. doing or saying things uh, to help them at the expense of the White House or to sort of distance themselves politically from Trump. So it's been really fascinating to monitor. And and again, it feels like we've been doing this for 10 years and we're only 10 months in, 11 months in. That's what's really remarkable is I just don't know how this is sustainable over the next three years. People are just worn out. Well, see, that's the Yeah, right. How long can this go on? I hear a lot of people I know in Washington asking that that the White House has got to be exhausted by oh, all of no this. No question. Right? I mean, it's not easy. That The work that has to be done there is not easy to begin with, and it's been so much harder. They haven't gotten a lot done in the first year uh, legislatively. Uh, certainly they're signing lots of executive orders, but you do wonder if the fatigue factor ends up wearing them down as much as, as anybody else. You know, you worry about someone like uh, uh, the chief of staff, John Kelly, who seems to be a level-headed tactician who wants to manage the White House in the right way. But he's got sort of a high bozo factor around him. You know, he's eliminated some of them. But, um, you know, how long can somebody like that stand in and just keep you know, taking the hits and and dealing with the craziness? I mean, this is the exact conversation that 
I was having last week at this dinner at, at, with with uh, a West Wing source, and and that I've had with a bunch of other people who work in the White House, a- including. Uh, I think it's important to note for your listeners, uh, including people who are very loyal to, to Trump, not people who are you know behind his back um, dogging him. Look, these folks are so exhausted. They are so fatigued. Uh, and, you know, I'm not playing a violin for them. They're, they're, on, they're getting a taxpayer salary and they chose to do this. But I'm just stating sort of some facts, uh, you know, physiologically and, and, and psychologically. These are people who are just drained at this point, because to your point, Stephen, they are anybody who works in any White House is working 16 to 18 hour days, five or six days a week. They are going at it around the clock, trying to advance the priorities of the president and of the federal government and of the country. It is it is exhausting work by nature. And that's in sort of a, a typical environment where the president is working sort of quietly behind the scenes with his advisors, trying to move things along at a deliberate pace, trying to uh, steer clear of controversy whenever possible because they understand the toll that it takes on their legislative agenda. This is a president who thrives on chaos. This is a president who wants <laughs> chaos. Uh, and and if you read his books, if you listen to him during the campaign, if you ever talk to him off the record, or if you if you were privy to conversations he has with his political strategists, with his advisors, he you would you would you would figure that out about him and realize that. The, to the extent that there is sort of a grand strategy for Trump, I think chaos is central it's to it. I th- wow. Yeah, I, I think he I think he understands that, you know, if he does 10 things in the course of a week, right, 10 things that get headlines and that get people talking and that sets Washington on fire, that people only have time to digest two or three of them. They can't digest all 10 of them. I mean, even people in Washington who are paid to pay attention to this can only digest probably six or seven of them. I mean, think about all of the big stories this year that in any other administration, they would have been defining stories that would have lasted, you know, 18 months or or, or two years or maybe even longer, would have been part of the legacy of an administration. And those stories are forgotten two or three weeks later, it seems like. Sometimes they're forgotten the next day because something else uh, has happened that has, you know, sucked all the oxygen out of the room. So people who are in this White House, that's why you're seeing such a high turnover rate. Dina Powell leaving last week. You're Mm going to see more prominent administration officials leaving in the next three to four months, I'm told. And I think that that is troubling because for whatever anybody wants to say about Trump, whether they love him or hate him, there has been a general consensus that in many of these positions, uh, now that the bozo factor, as you Mm -hmm. uh, described it, has sort of been taken care of, and John Kelly has rooted some of these people out who did not belong in the first place, there are a lot of other people in this administration who are extremely qualified and who are extremely... I think who who have been a breath of fresh air to Republicans and to Democrats on the Hill because they just have a basic competence and an understanding of how to do the job, how to run their department, whatever it might be. When you start losing those folks, who does the president look to as his second string? I think yeah. that is a real concern for people around town, regardless of whether they are on board and allied with the administration or adversarial against them, because the more turnover you have in such a short period of time, I think that the replacements may not be up to snuff. Yeah. Okay. Tim Alberta, feature writer for Politico magazine. Thanks very much for joining us here on Detroit Today. 
It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Detroit Today is produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Neer. The program director is Joan Isabella. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And the associate producers are Gus Navarro, Aaron Allen, and Ziad Butch. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET Sam Bobian. That's it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 101.9 Detroit uh, uh, 101.9 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you.